have questions. Questions like, why is it called a building if it's already built? Why is there no egg in eggplant? And do penguins have knees? But some questions are more important than others. We gave a survey to find your most asked questions. Every week, we're gonna answer your most asked questions and discover God's best plan, because you asked for it. We're in week four of our series, You Asked For It, answering the questions that you have asked. In week one, we, we answered the question, how can Romans 8.28 be true? How can all things, the good things and the bad things, work together for the good of those who love the Lord? In week two, we answered the question, if God is sovereign and he loves everyone, then why doesn't he save everyone? Last week, Pastor Scott answered the question, what happens when we die? I mean, from that time that we die to the time when Jesus comes back, what happens? But today's question, without a doubt, is the one that stirs up the most emotion that we've answered yet. To be honest with you, this is a controversial question to answer and, and there are a lot of churches and a lot of pastors that, that won't even attempt to answer this question because there are so many people on both sides that, that get upset. This is an emotional issue and it seems like people get emotional on, on each side and it seems like each side tries to bully the other. This past week someone took a picture of our sign that simply says this Sunday homosexual and Christian, question mark, and they posted it on Facebook. And I'm here to tell you that it got some emotional comments. Well, I tried to get on the side and see it for myself, and, and I couldn't see it. I was blocked from the person's sight. And so I sent them a private message and said, hey, here's, here's what we're doing. We're in this series, you asked for it, where we're answering questions that are People have asked, and this week's question is about homosexuality, and I would love to talk to you about what I'm going to talk about. Well, I was ignored. I, I went back to see if I could reply again or answer again and ask the question again, and I had been blocked from private message. I say that to say this is an emotional issue. Regardless of where you stand, regardless of what you believe, this is an emotional issue. And because of that, I want to begin by showing you a picture. This is a picture of Eric Burgess. Eric Burgess, by, by his account, grew up in a conservative Christian home. And when he was very young, in kindergarten, he began to think that there was something different about him. And everyone else made him know that there was something different about him. Even in kindergarten, he began to be bullied. This is what Eric said in his own words. He said, I was physically, mentally, verbally, and emotionally assaulted on a daily basis. This led to him experiencing depression, suicidal thoughts, and, and other problems. Eric was stalked. Eric was spit on. Eric was ostracized. On one occasion in school, he was beat up in class while his teacher looked the other way. When he was a sophomore in college, he came out to his parents. He, he admitted that, that he was a gay. And his parents condemned him. They said that he was disgusting, perverted, unnatural, and he was damned to hell. 
They kicked him out of his house. Later on that year in 2011, Eric killed himself. He committed suicide. I share that story with you this morning as we begin to let you know that we're not talking about an issue this morning. We're talking about people. We're talking about human beings that God loves and God created. We're talking about people that Jesus came to this earth and sacrificed himself for. And so understand, this isn't just an issue. This is about people. And so the question we're answering this morning is this. Can we be saved by grace and continue to live a homosexual lifestyle? Can we be saved by grace and, and continue to live a lifestyle of homosexuality? Now, whenever I think about homosexuality, I think about a variety of people. But I think about four people in particular. These four always come to my mind. One of them is a man that, that lived in the neighborhood I grew up in. He was always one of the nicest men that you would ever meet. When I got into middle school, I began to hear names that this man was called. When I became an adult and, and surrendered my life to Jesus, I began to play tennis with this guy. And, and as we played tennis, we would have conversations about Jesus and how Jesus had changed my life. This man is still living and he's still one of the nicest men I've ever met. The second person I think about is a, is a guy that I went to college with my first year in college. He was in the fraternity that I was in and, and he was involved in student government. He was a nice guy, he was a good friend, but this particular guy had the opportunity to see both sides of my life. He saw my life before I surrendered to Jesus and he saw my life after I surrendered to Jesus. When I surrendered my life to Jesus, I transferred schools. I needed to get out of that environment. And, and so we lost touch. And through Facebook, we were able to reconnect after 30 years. And this friend of mine is now living on the West Coast, married to his partner. The third person that I think about is a, a young man that I met in the upstate. I received a call one day from a complete stranger asking me if I would visit this young man who was in his 20s in the hospital. He had AIDS. And so I went and I visited him and began to talk with him. And, and over a period of time, this young man prayed and gave his life to Jesus. The third person that I think about when I think about homosexuality is a, a man that was a member of the church I pastored in Orlando. He and his wife and his three children were, were active members there. They moved to Orlando because he was the vice president of an organization called Exodus International. He was a lawyer by occupation, but now he was the vice president of this organization. His story is like this. After he got married, he was living a married lifestyle, but he was living a lie. And, and one day he wrote his wife a letter. He left it at the house and he left. He wrote, I'm gay, I can't live a lie anymore. I'm going to live my life the way I was created to live it. And so he began to live out on a daily basis his homosexual life. But his wife loved him. His wife cared for him. His wife wouldn't let him go. And so she prayed for him. She had other people praying for him. And a little over a year later on an Easter Sunday, he was drawn to church. 
And that Sunday morning, he was convicted of his sin. He experienced the love of Jesus, and Jesus radically and dramatically changed his life. He said things didn't change overnight for me. It wasn't that I became this he-man overnight or anything like that, and he's still not. I mean, he is a styling and profiling guy. But Jesus changed his life. Now, why do I say that? Because, again, we're not talking about an issue. We're talking about people. And I have a lot of friends who are and have been gay. I have people in our church who are and who have been gay. I have friends who have children who are gay. And I say that to say, I don't think that I'm any better than any of them. Truth be told, I feel like I'm worse than they are. The fact is that the worst sinner I see is the sinner I see in the mirror every morning when I wake up and I look at myself in the mirror. If there's anyone who does not deserve the grace and the mercy of God, it's me. I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve God's grace. But somehow, someway, Jesus changed my life. He forgave my sin And oh, one day, I long to live forever with Him. And I'm here to tell you that regardless of who you are, what you've done, or what your lifestyle may be, Jesus loves you too. So for the question, can we experience God's grace and live a homosexual lifestyle? Well, the truth is, to answer that question, we really need to answer two questions. The first one is this, is homosexuality a sin? We have to address that first of all. We have to know, is homosexuality a sin? And what you need to understand about this issue is this. God, not man, determines what is sin. You see, sin is against God. And because sin is against God, because sin is breaking God's law, God is the one who determines what sin is. The second thing you need to understand is this. The question isn't, can you struggle with homosexuality and be a Christian? The question isn't, can you have a homosexual tendency and and be a Christian? The question isn't, can you be tempted with homosexuality and be a Christian? The question is, can I practice as a lifestyle homosexuality and be a Christian? But what we need to understand is, really, that's not the question. The question is, can I continue to practice any sin and be a Christian? Can I continue to sleep around outside of marriage and be a Christian? Can I go out and get drunk and be a Christian? Can I lie and cheat and swindle people and be a Christian? You see, the issue isn't just about homosexuality. The issue is about sin And the issue is whether I can live in sin, whether I can practice sin and say that the grace of God has saved me. Now, some of you are saying, but Rocky, doesn't the Bible say that homosexuals are an abomination? And the answer to that is no. The Bible never says that a homosexual is abomination. The truth of the matter is, is that the Bible never calls any human being an abomination. The Bible does call some sins, 
The Bible does call some practices abominations. But God never calls individuals abominations. You see, if you are here today and you're gay or you struggle with that or you struggle with any sin, you need to understand what the Bible says about you. And the Bible says that you are loved passionately by your Creator. The Bible says that you were created in the image and the likeness of God. And God desires a relationship with you. The Bible says that you deserve dignity. You deserve respect. You do not deserve to be bullied, spoken down to, called names, or disrespected. The Bible says that you are a work of art. That God is an artist who made you. And you were made with a purpose and own purpose. And the Bible says that God longs for relationship with so much that he sent his son, his only son, as a sacrifice for your sins. That's what the Bible says about you specifically. So what does the Bible say about the homosexual lifestyle? Well, to answer that question, I want to give you three statements as we walk through the Bible, that I think will help you understand this issue. We're going to start with Genesis, and we're going to walk through the Bible, okay? Now, here's the first statement. God's design from creation has always been one man united with one woman for a lifetime. You see, the Bible makes it very clear that God's plan for sex has always been one man and one woman together in a monogamous relationship until death. I want you to listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 1. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds of the air, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now Genesis 1 gives us an overview of creation. God created the light and the darkness. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the water and the land. God created the plants and the animals. And then God created man. God created human beings. He created us in his image, in his likeness. And we are told that God created them male and female. He created two distinct individuals, the same in God's image, yet different and distinct. But that's not where it ends. If all we read is Genesis chapter 1, we would think that God created man and woman, male and female, at the same time. But when we read Genesis chapter 2, we discover that's not the case. We discover as we read Genesis 2 that God created man, and man was all alone. And the one thing that God said was not good throughout all creation is this aloneness of man. And so God says, I am going to make a helper that is suitable for man. That word helper, it doesn't mean servant by any means. It literally means completer, someone who complements someone else, someone who is an equal and yet different from. And so God says, I am going to make man a helper suitable for him. Now that word suitable is an interesting word in Hebrew. It's a compound word that means like, yet different. Think about that. God said, I am going to create a helper just for you who is like you and yet different from you. 
And that's what God created when he created woman. He created someone who was like Adam in the image and the likeness of God and yet very different from Adam at the same time. Now, now how did he do that? Well, we discover how he did that as we continue to read in Genesis 2. Listen to what it says. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out of the man's ribs and uh, took out one of the man's ribs, closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. We are told that God made man... In chapter 2, verse 7, from the dust of the ground. But we're told here that God made woman from man. From one, God made two. And then God said to the two, you are now to become one. You see, God's design from the very beginning is one man united in love to one woman for a lifetime. Now, some people may say, well, that was Genesis. That's just simply descriptive of Adam and Eve, and it's not prescriptive for the rest of us. And I would say that you're wrong. Jesus affirmed this truth. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus was asked a question specifically about divorce. And in answering the question, he went to two passages of Scripture. Genesis 1:27, and then chapter 2, verse 24. Now, the verse in chapter 2 answers the question on divorce. Jesus said, since the two have become one, let no one separate what God has joined together. And so God said, divorce is wrong. He could have left it there, but he didn't. He added to the answer, Genesis 1, 27, God made them male and female. God made them different and yet the same. And he did this so that they could have this unique relationship throughout history. And I think we would all agree that, that anatomically, physiologically, emotionally, psychologically, men and women are distinct. We're different. And though, though, and though those differences may be more clearly seen in some than others... It's clear that men and women are different. And God did this so that we would have a partner throughout life. But I think we would all agree that something has gone wrong. I mean, divorce is rampant. People sleep around before they get married. People sleep around after they get married. Men sleep with men. Women sleep with women. I mean, we have gone wild. We have gone crazy. So what went wrong? I mean, if God's plan from the beginning of creation was one man united with one woman in this sexual, intimate relationship, what went wrong? Well, that leads us to point two. And that is our rebellion against God led to corruption of God's design. I want you to notice what God told Adam in Genesis chapter 2. It says, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now initially, God gave Adam one command. 
He said, do not eat from this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then he warned him. He said, if you eat from this tree, you will die. Well, if you're familiar with the story, you know that that Satan came in the form of a serpent, the most cunning and subtle of all the animals, and he tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. I want you to listen to what Satan said in Genesis 3. He said, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it. You'll be like God. The woman was convinced. So she took some of the fruit. She ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And at that moment, their eyes were opened. And they were suddenly filled with shame. You see, the first man and the first woman believed the lie that all of us have a tendency to believe. And that is, we can be just like God. We can be our own God. We can decide right and wrong. We can decide good and bad. But that's a lie. You see, only our Creator can determine what is right and wrong or good and bad. The Creator, not culture, determines right and wrong. So they ate the fruit, and the moment they did, their eyes were open, and they were filled with shame. And their sin, their rebellion, led to separation from God. And we see this throughout Scripture, this sin that infected them infects us all. This is how David said it. He said, I was born a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. In other words, when I came out of the womb, I was already a sinner. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, Adam's sin brings condemnation for everyone. But the truth is, we aren't only born with sin... Given enough time, each and every one of us will sin. The Bible says all have sinned. All have fallen short of God's standard. You see, we see Adam and Eve's sin repeated throughout human history. Sin has infected us all. It's something we all struggle with. You see, we decide that we have the right to determine what is right and wrong for us. But we can't do that. God does. God is our creator. God is our judge. So the question is, is homosexuality a sin? And the Bible makes clear that it is. The first reference to this is in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. It's a story of of two cities and an area. Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says that their wickedness had become so great that God destroyed the cities and the surrounding areas. If you read the story, you read how sexual perversion in every form was dominating their society. In Jude chapter 1 verse 7, it says this uh, about Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, and don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. In Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, it tells us, do not practice homosexuality. It is a detestable sin. But understand, for you who don't struggle in this area, But it also says adultery is a detestable sin. It says not honoring your father and mother is punishable by death. 
And so just because you don't struggle with one area, don't think that you are better than someone else if you are struggling in other areas. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, it says, The law is for the people who are sexually immoral, who practice homosexuality, or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news. And we're going to look at some other verses in just a minute. But, but needless to say, the Bible clearly teaches that homosexuality is a sin. It is a result of our fallen nature just like every other sin. It's not the sin, but it is a sin. But with that said, let me just pause for just a minute and say that there is something unique. Uniquely dangerous about sexual sin. All sexual sin. The Bible says flee sexual immorality. And the reason the Bible warns us of this is because sexual sin, unlike any other sin, has this ability to grab hold of us and control us unlike any other sin out there. And so the Bible warns us, whether we're heterosexual or homosexual, flee sexual immorality because you are sinning in a way that is going to control you and lead to your destruction. Now the big question that, that a lot of people have today is this when it comes to homosexuality. Are you born a homosexual or do you become a homosexual? Because if I'm born gay then it must be natural. And if it's natural, then it must be normal. And if it's normal, then it must be okay. But here's what you need to understand. Each and every one of us, regardless of what our sexual orientation may be, are born with a particular genetic makeup that has a determinative effect on who we are and how we live. We are born into a fallen world, and we are born with a fallen nature. One of the core doctrines of Christianity is the depravity of man. And the depravity of man says that no part of humanity escapes the result of the fall. And no part of our lives escapes the effect of the fall. Every one of us has been infected by sin and every part of our being is infected by sin. Sexually, psychologically, emotionally, each and every one of us have been infected by sin to the core of who we are. And so do some people have a genetic, genetic makeup that make them more prone to struggle with homosexuality? I, I don't know, but, but that's a possibility. Because the truth of the matter is, we're all born with a genetic makeup that is prone to sin. Some of you are born with a genetic makeup that makes alcoholism a whole lot easier for you. Some of you are born with a genetic makeup that causes you to have roving eyes more than someone else. Some of you are born with a genetic makeup that may cause you to, to search after and long after money. But that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it okay. You see, just because I am born a sinner does not make it okay to sin. And just because I am born with certain desires doesn't give me the right to act out on those desires. Our desires are never a determination of what is right. 
In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says this. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Our heart, our emotions have this incredible ability to convince us that what is wrong is right. It's deceptive. Today, we hear people say, follow your heart, listen to your heart. But the Bible says, watch out for your heart. Your heart, your desires will lead you astray. Instead, follow Christ. So our rebellion led to corruption. Here's the third truth. The consequence of our corruption is continued rebellion, darkened and confused minds, and eventual separation from God for all eternity. I want to read a passage of Scripture to you. It's a long passage, but, but you need to hear it to better understand what we're living in today. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, But God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because He made it obvious to them, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. They worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things they should never have done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. The Bible says that God has made himself known to everyone. And yet many... I think the Bible teaches most refuse to worship Him. They don't give Him thanks. It goes on to say they have replaced what the Bible says about God with their own foolish ideas about God. They have chosen to believe a lie rather than the truth. And because of this, it goes on to say that their minds became dark and confused, so God abandons them. To their shameful desires. In other words, when we turn our back on the truth of God and what His Word says, we become more confused and we become more darkened. And then notice what it says. It says they exchange the natural for the unnatural. And as a result, their lives are filled with every kind of wickedness. And that's what's happening today. We have substituted the truth of God for the lies that we have invented. And it has led to where we are today. Now listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you realize that those who 
do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul isn't giving us an exhausted list of sins here. He's given us some of the primary sins that the people in Corinth dealt with. But the truth of the matter is probably each and every one of us in this room are guilty of some of these. I, I know I am. I'm guilty of some of these. But Paul isn't saying that if we've ever committed these sins, we can't enter the kingdom of God. Paul isn't saying if we struggle with some of these sins, we can't enter the kingdom of God. He's not saying if we're tempted in these areas, we can't enter the kingdom of God. But what he is saying is if we continually practice sin while saying we're saved, we're deceiving ourselves. And we're not going to enter the kingdom of God. You see, the Bible makes it clear that God's kingdom is for those who want to be set free from the power of sin. God's kingdom is for those who long to be holy and righteous the way that we were created to live in the first place. You see, some of you have this idea that because you prayed some little feel-good prayer back when you were in middle school or high school or as an adult or as a child, you're going to go to heaven regardless of how you live, and you're mistaken. You're not. If your life hasn't been changed, you're not saved. It doesn't matter what your sin of preference is. If you sit back and say, it's okay to cheat people and live a greedy, self-centered life, you're not saved. If you excuse sleeping around even though you're not married, you're not saved. If you're cheating on your husband or your wife and you're thinking, hey, this is okay, you're not saved. If you're going out every weekend and getting drunk and thinking there's nothing wrong with this, you're not saved. If your life is, is seen by habitual lying, you're not saved. That's what the Bible is saying here. It doesn't matter whether you're homosexual or heterosexual. It doesn't matter whether you're poor or rich. If you continue in a lifestyle of sin, the Bible says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, this isn't a homosexual issue. Homosexuality is one sin among many that is the result of our fallen nature. The issue is, do we desire to be set free from the power of sin? And if we don't, we haven't been saved. Paul says, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. But there's good news. And the good news is the fourth truth. God will restore us to his original design. Listen to what it says in verse 11. Some of you were once like this, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Did you get that? Paul is talking to the church. And Paul says, some of you were adulterers. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were homosexuals. 
Some of you were effeminate cross-dressers. Some of you were cheaters and swindlers and drunkards and liars. Some of you did all kinds of things, but, but, but you met Jesus and He justified you and He washed you and He made you right with God when you called on His name. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, it doesn't mean to pray some just generic prayer. Calling on the name of the Lord means turning from sin and surrendering your life to His control. That's calling on the Lord. You've called on Him to say, I don't want to live this way anymore. Whatever sin it is that is controlling and dominating your life, I don't want this. And you surrender yourself To Jesus and Jesus justifies you and washes you and he makes you right with God. He can do that for you. He did that for me. True confession time. I'm guilty of sexual sin. I'm guilty of drunkenness. I'm guilty of lying. I'm guilty of stealing. I'm guilty of greed. And I'm guilty of a host of other things that I'm not even going to share with you. I'm guilty. But one day, I was overcome with my guilt and my shame. And I called upon Jesus. And I asked Him to save me and change me. And I got to tell you, He did. Am I perfect? Oh, no. I'm a work in progress. But the moment I called on Him, He changed my desires. I wanted to live for Him. Does that mean that I didn't still struggle at times? Yes. Does that mean that I don't struggle today? No, it doesn't mean that I still struggle with certain things. But Jesus changed my desires more than anything. I want to live for Jesus. And when I sin and when I fail Him, I'm convicted and I confess it and I seek through the power of His Spirit to make it right and that's what it says we are saved by calling on the name of the Lord and the power of his spirit when we're saved God's spirit comes to live in us Mike my friend that lived in Orlando that's now pastoring on the west coast this is what he said he said when I got saved I didn't change I still was this feminine looking guy but I knew that God changed my heart and I wanted him to change my desires even though I still struggled with temptations he said I got involved in a church and there were some guys that were godly guys that took me under their wing and they began to show me what a man of God looks like he said I'm still not a hunter and I'm still not a fisher or any of those things like that but God changed me And he is changing me. That 20-year-old boy who was in that hospital, let me tell you the rest of the story. I went into his room that day and I began to talk to him to find out his condition. And and then I began to talk to him about Jesus. And I, I gave him an invitation to repent of his sin and turn to Jesus. And he said, no, I haven't done anything wrong. And I looked at him with tears in my eyes and said, you're a sinner. Just like I'm a sinner. Your sin may be different than mine, but it's no worse than mine. 
We're both sinners in need of the grace of God. But until you acknowledge your sin, confess it and call upon Jesus, you can't experience salvation. I prayed for him. I left his room and I went to visit some other people in that hospital. I'd been there for about 30 minutes when a nurse found me in the hospital. And she said, that young man that you were talking to, he wants to see you. And I went back to his room and when I went there, he was sobbing. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've turned my back on God. I want him to save me. Can you tell me how to be saved? And he gave his life to Jesus. And I can tell you right now, in eternity, we're going to hug. And we're going to spend eternity around the throne worshiping our Savior. His sins may have been different than my sins, but they were all washed through the blood of Jesus. And you see, regardless of who you are and what your sexual orientation may be and what your sins may be, God can save you and He can transform you and He can give you a home in heaven. But you've got to call on Him. Let Him save you. And the good news is if you do that humbly, intentionally, He'll hear you and He'll save you. So would you bow your head with me? Just close your eyes. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I, I want to ask you a question. If you're here this morning, you say, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that I don't deserve heaven. And I'm ready to turn from my sin and trust Jesus to save me. If you're ready to do that, then I want to lead you in a word of prayer. But it's not saying these words. It's surrendering your life to Jesus. So if that's where you're at and you're ready to turn from whatever your sins may be and surrender everything to Jesus, let me encourage you to say these words after me to God. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly acknowledging my sin to you. I'm so sorry. I've lived life my way. Tried to play God. I thought I could decide right and wrong. I'm sorry, God. I don't want to live this way anymore. I know you love me. I know you sent your son to die for me. I know if I'll ask you, you'll save me. And I'm asking you. Save me. Come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me brand new. Give me the power to say no to my sinful desires. And yes to the way you want me to live. Thank you Jesus for hearing my prayer.